0: Make mine, the words of, of, the, of the hymn writer. O oh Lord, speak to me, that I may speak in living echoes of your tone. As you have thought, taught, so let me teach. We are erring children, lost and alone. Amen. Let's, as we come to this passage, it is my desire this morning, brothers and sisters, to speak on the subject of being spiritually cold, in a spiritual revival. And I pray. I pray that the Lord would be pleased as we tackle this subject. That he would be pleased to start a fire in our souls. to To take away that coldness. To make us yearn for his presence in our lives. That God would indeed enliven us and revive us. That he would as the psalmist says, pour pour out water on the thirsty uh, and floods on dry ground. It is quite natural, isn't it? As we look to this passage, as we look to our lives, it is quite natural that we become cold as the days go by, as the months go by, and years even. It is natural to the human soul, to to the... Fall in, to fall in human nature to stop being warm and on fire for the Lord to lose that first love reading scripture that once was um, enthralling becomes a cumbersome task is no longer satisfying praying to God become, starts being neglected in a mere formality it becomes drowned by the cares and anxieties of this life it is quite normal for us as days, months and years go by to find ourselves spiritually cold and distant from the Lord and the answer is revival There's a lot of books that have been written over the years about revival. Some of them more helpful than others. There's a lot of things that have been said from pulpits and and lecterns uh, across the world about revival. Some of them better than others, certainly. And the question is, what is revival? It is God pouring out His Spirit. It is God coming uh, in in a tremendous way... uh, in pouring out His Spirit in a people, at the same time, but in a sense, and I'm not saying that we can bring about revival. It is in God's power to do it, and it is uh, in God's uh, prem- it is God's premise alone. But there is a sense, brothers and sisters, that revival is individually commanded for each of us to seek it each of us is to seek and to have it to make sure that it is there in our lives to not allow ourselves to become spiritually distant, distant and cold indeed when people talk about revival they're talking more about uh, than just talking about individuals uh, returning to that first love Times of revival in history have been times where God, as uh, uh, as it was, poured out His Spirit in in such a way as they, they say, uh, in a, in filled a number of people across a region, across a country, and it is revival in many ways that we need as well. Not only the individual that is commanded for each of us to seek it, to have it, and to make sure that it is there, but for the church. It is revival that the church needs in our days. Revival above everything else. More than just the fact that people are getting converted in great numbers. That it, that comes with a package as it is, or as they say, but revival as it is as it its core, as at its core, a restoring God to the center of a church's life. It is a the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is Him being restored to the center of of the life of the church. So you see, primarily revival is not about what God will or do in a district like ours in this neighborhood for which we do pray that revival would come so that people in this neighborhood would be saved from their sins but revival is much more about what God does in us because revival normally begins with God's people and yes then like a, a broken dam uh, uh, starting to you start to see the cracks and it starts to trickle through and as the water goes by it then turns into a flood that's how uh, historically it has worked in, worked in, in revivals it overflows it spills into society but it starts within the church it starts within the uh, with individual believers being restored From their coldness of heart and and distance from God to a a fiery zeal and a a nearness to God. That is what we need. That is what we need in our lives. And we need to stop and examine ourselves. We need to stop before we come to consider this passage uh, that speaks on revival. We need to stop, stop and examine our ways. We can deceive ourselves. We can say, oh, I'm fine, thank you. That's for, my, that's for the person sitting next to me, sitting, sitting across from me. That's for someone else. That's not for me. I'm, I'm very good, thank you. So often the people who are most distant and most cold are the people who are most confident in the way that they, the, uh, that they are going in fact, I would say that people who are in, indeed going through a, a, a spiritual revival individually, individually are the people who say, yes, you're right, I'm not, I haven't received, I haven't, I haven't experienced, I'm too far away from God, I need to get closer. It is often the people that say, I'm good, thank you, I, I have enough of spirituality, I'm very good spiritually. They're, those are often the people who are the most cold and distant. The wagon that makes the most noise usually, as they say in Portugal, is the wagon that is most empty. So we need to stop and ask ourselves. Because if I'm correct in, in that the revival is a returning to the Lord and putting God at the center, then repentance is akin to revival. Revival and repentance are the same thing. Returning to God, returning to the Lord, uh, is akin. It is the same thing as revival. And when I look at my text today, I see very, a few important lessons for us. Consider just really in, uh, as a sweep from from chapter four to chapter six, uh, as a recap uh, uh, for the context of this sermon. Consider what the lessons that the 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 Israelites had learned. Israel had been at war with the Philistines. In, in Samuel chapter 4, we saw that. That Israel went to battle with the Philistines and that they were defeated. They were sorely, sorely defeated that day, ashamed. 4,000 men died. Men who were fathers, brothers, men who were sons to someone. They suffered a huge defeat on that day. But they go out again. You read it in chapter 4, and they superstitiously bring the ark because they say the ark will save us. This, this good luck charm that we have, he will save us. We have certain victory now, but tragedy happens again. And on that, day, on that second occasion, 30,000 more men die. But even worse, isn't wasn't it? You remember, not only there was a second defeat and 30,000 men died, but now the Ark of the Lord was captured. The Ark of the Lord was taken into captivity. The humiliating and crushing defeat was, was layered and, and built upon. On the, 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 the Ark of the Lord was taken away because of their sins, because of the sins of their leaders, particularly Ofni, Ofni and Phinehas who died in that battle. And when Eli, the high priest of of that day, heard about it, he fell and he broke his neck and he died as well. What a mournful and afflicting day that day was in the lives of Israel. And when we saw how the ark, what happened with the ark in Philistia, didn't we? How they took the ark, placed it in the temple of Dagon and one morning they get up, the, the, the statue of Dagon is fallen on its face. They put it, they prop it back up. And the, the next morning they come out again and go into the temple again. And again, the, the, the statue of Dagon is fallen on his face. This time the, the neck was severed, the hands were broken. All to and, and how the Ark of the Lord brought judgment not only on on the gods of, of the Philistines but also upon the land and the people, and all that we saw there was to emphasize that God is a holy God, He is the only God, and he is victor, and we saw that last week didn't we in that great victory march as the the Ark of the Lord is being led by two cows. That were never yoked before, not, not being driven by anyone. The Lord leading that ark back into the land with the defeated Philistines. The victory march, putting them to open shame, those bruised and battered enemies, defeated by the Lord. And as we read in verse 1 today, um, the ark was eventually brought to Kirjath-Jerim. It was placed under the care. The ark was in Philistia for seven months. It returned to Israel. It was placed on, uh, after a, another situation in Beth Shemesh. It was placed in uh, the house of Aminadab and under the care of Eliazar for 20 years, we read. And, and I would say, let that sink in for a moment. Take, take note of the, of the time frame of this passage. 20 years. We don't know what happened in, during these 20 years. We don't need to know, otherwise we would have it here. It would be another chapter in this book. But 20 years. Let that sink in. The, 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 the time frame in which God works. 20 years of a cold, distant Distant relationship or lack of relationship with God. Twenty years for Samuel, this now uh, prophet judge of Israel, to uh, probably alongside a few others of the of the remnant, but twenty years of Samuel pleading with the people and praying to God to turn to to act. 20 years of praying and urging the Israelites to turn from their idols. It took 20 years for the people of God to come to this position in the end of verse 2 where they were lamenting. 20 years of God having removed his presence. 20 years of oppression under the Philistines. How stiff-necked we are sometimes. It takes 20 years for us to learn a lesson. Sometimes it takes more even. 20 years. 20 years of desperately needing God. To pour out new mercies. And during these long years. There was Samuel. Faithfully. Boldly. Preaching God's words. Twenty years of oppression were what it took to make Israel miss the presence and the nearness of God. The Apostle Paul says, doesn't he, that godly sorrow produces repentance and repentance leads to salvation. Finally, they are able to... To see the work of God in their lives or in the, they're in a position of seeing the work of God in their lives because they started to lament their situation better late than ever, as they say. But to see that if, uh, that if uh, Israel's sorrow was truly felt, heartfelt, true and, 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 and genuine... Samuel comes forth and he says, he speaks to them. Verse 3, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, if you would return to the Lord with all your hearts, is the beginning of his call out. It is a challenge to them. If you are indeed not satisfied, if you are indeed not, not, not happy with the situ- this situation, if you are with uh, lamenting and it's not just some kind of uh, fleeting remorse, it is, is it true that you are repentant? Then turn from your idols. Put away with your foreign gods and your ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you. They had abandoned God for idols. As a, a small aside, if you go to the British Museum, you find that in the in the section that deals with, with the Middle East in this in this time, there is a few asterisks there. You can see what uh, Samuel here refers to as these palms, these these statues, uh, these idols. In archaeological findings in Israel. Uh, even to this day, when they are going through the homes and, and houses of that period, they, they find these small statues. It's not that Israel was. Uh, uh, it demonstrates that Israel, who did indeed for seasons at a time, turn from, from serving the Lord alone to, to worshiping these false gods, they had abandoned God. They have become slaves and in bondage to their sin. That's what the Bible says about the, the New Testament says about sin. Our Lord Jesus said that the, the, the one who sins, everyone who commits sin, is a slave to sin. It is it is like fetters in our lives that need to be broken. And he says, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. You sin, you commit, and the only thing that waits for you is death. So what hope can we have? What hope is there for, for a people who have offended God like, like the people of our day and like the people of Samuel's day? The hope is what, what Samuel is saying to them. If you would turn to the Lord, the Lord will receive you. You can always come back to God. The answer is the mercy of God. You can always return, come back to God. Because God will not turn away a penitent sinner ever, ever. God will not turn away a sinner that comes back with humility seeking his grace. Zechariah verse, chapter 1 verse 3, we looked at it uh, maybe uh, a year ago. It says, return to me and I will t- return to you. God is always o- wa- arms wide open to any penitent sinner who would draw near in, 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 in need for grace. He does not turn them away. And it is this grace that Samuel has in mind. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Turn to him. But you see, what, what repentance is, is so clearly defined here. Repentance is not just a, a, a feeling sorry for your sins. It involves action. It involves much more, far more uh, than, than just feeling sorry for your sins. People can feel sorry for when they are caught sinning. They're sorry they've been caught act, uh, more, 99% of the times. They, they are sorry uh, about the misery that they will experience as a result of their sin. But that is not true repentance. True repentance involves a turning of the, of the, uh, of the actions, uh, 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 a return. True repentance begins by being sorry, yes, over sin itself. But it, but it also goes on to put it away, to forsake it, to turn to God and to plead for His mercy. To, to a new found obedience. Israel's sin was idolatry. That's why he was telling them. Then put it away. If you're truly sorry. If you're truly repenting. If you're truly lamenting. Put them away. Turn to serve the Lord your God. With all your heart. And this wasn't just. You need to realize this. And this. Uh, in order to understand the significance of what is happening. This is not just Samuel saying. Can you just pick up the statues that you have there in your, in your small altar. That's how, where they f- usually find these statues. statues when they are digging through Israel. and you, They find small altars within the house. And the statue is still there. Uh, buried. Um, uh, it's not, it, what Samuel is saying is. It's not just. Can, can you just go there pick it up, throw it in, into the, the rubbish bin, and it's fine. It's much more than this. Samuel is asking them to put away with, with these foreign gods to abandon the, the, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, to abandon the ways of everyone else around them. You want a spotlight to be shown on you in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern society like the, the one of Samuel's day as a people? Do what Samuel is asking. Because everyone around them had many gods. We just read about the Philistines and Dagon and, and everyone was, was this syncretic uh, kind of people. Every nation around was in this way. What Samuel is asking is, you need to be different. You need to clearly show how distinct our God is. You need to put away and to be separate. That's basically what what Samuel is asking of them. So it's much more than just throw them out. It's like, be separate. Be distinct from the idolatrous culture that is around you, Samuel says. And that is very similar to us, isn't it? As Christians, we are told to flee from this world, or to flee from the, 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 the worldliness that is in this world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. That is how we should act. We shouldn't be like the world the Apostle John reminds us that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in, in possessions, is not from the Father, but from this world. You know, when James is rebuking the, uh, in his letter, the, the, the recipients of the letter, he, he says, you adulterous people, you do not know that the friendship of this world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Genuine repentance, Samuel is saying, is not just something here that no one else can see. It is tangible, visible. It is difficult. It does not only stop in tears and words, it, it demonstrates itself in actions. This is why Samuel joined the 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 turning from the idols and throwing them away to a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Direct your heart, verse three, or turn your heart to prepare your heart for the Lord and serve Him only. And then there's a promise, isn't there? That turning from sin to the Lord gives us hope he says that he will deliver you Samuel promised that God had given Israel uh, over so as to uh, given Israel over so as to bring the people to remorse over their sin so that when they would and turn back to him they would receive the blessing and the help that they needed So what did the people do? So the children of Israel, we read, put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the, the Lord only. They were sincere. At this time, at least, we, we see a glimmer of hope. They were sincere. They were pure in their, in their repentance and they served the lord there is the same word for worship they they worship they gave glory to god alone that is what we need if we are to see revival first of all we need to turn back to the lord to confess our sins to plead for his mercy if we want to experience renewal we, this is what we need we live in a time of uh, even in in the church context where a lot of the, of this kind of sentiment and mentality this syncretic uh, worldly way of doing things comes so clearly across let us just be a little bit more worldly let us just be a little bit uh, carnal in, in the way that we do it let's be a little just a little bit more sensual even that's what the Baals and the ashurats in in uh, in Israel's, they were known as the fertility gods, the man and the, the male and the female idol. Let us just be a little bit more like this. Let us persuade people to come to church with these kind of things. And let's call it a spiritual revival when we start seeing people come in. Because we, we have numbers now. Is that what we want? Is that what true spiritual revival is? According to scripture, no, because true spiritual revival is always accompanied with repentance and with putting away of worldliness and sin. The same is true on a personal level if you if you say you can say to me, to your pastors, to you can say to your friend, to your brothers and sisters, oh, I, I've I've really come through a, a period now. I I, I really uh, I feel like the Lord is I'm close to the Lord again. But yet you still are unrepented over your sins, and still you are worldly in your approaches, and still you have sin in your life. That is unrepented of. If still you have no passion for holiness. You haven't experienced spiritual revival at all. William Copper and his hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God. Oh, that we would all pray that him in our hearts. That we would all uh, be able to pray it from the depths and the uh, and the the genuineness of our of our heart uh, with genuineness in our hearts he says the dearest idol i have known whatever idol that be help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee that is what we need we need to experience something of what israel experienced here because then we will experience restoration i'm going to move Uh, quickly now through some of these verses but we see this as israel turns to god and uh, the lord the lord turns to them and they experience victory and restoration they experience revival and, and 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 conquest and rest and they are restored individual sins that are confessed and repented on an individual basis they are, they are one thing, but here we see also the, the, the importance of uh, repenting of congregational sins as a church or as a nation uh, in this case. It is proper for congregations as they seek a blessing in, 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 their, in their lives to confess guilt of their sin. In our services, we, we should have moments of confessing, a uh, confession of sin. And once the people had gathered together, that's what Samuel said, bring them all together. This is not just about individual sin, this is about corporate sin. Bring them all together in, in Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. He prayed. And they came together and they, they poured water, which is an interesting gesture uh, that I, I'm not quite sure what it meant. One commentator says that they were denying themselves of liquids as a symbolic confession that the Lord's favor was more important to them than life-sustaining water. Another commentator says it is a symbol of pouring out before God confessions of sin drawn from the depths of the heart. But to this pouring out of water they add fasting to express special humiliation and grief for their sin. And there can be little doubt. They were truly sincere. They were, they were truly in grief because of their sin. Look at verse 6. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. Where was this back in, in Cham- Samuel chapter 4? That's where you should have done there. But now they understood. It took them 20 years and 7 months or round about that. But at least they now understand they humbled themselves before God. They, they were convicted of their unworthiness and of their sin. And they were emptied of self-reliance uh, to turn to God and to plead with Him. God, we need You to act on our, on our behalf. We need You to be gracious to us. We need new mercies from Your throne But why a question you could ask, and I think the question we all should ask: why should God hear them? Can you imagine telling someone for 20 years that they're wrong? And, 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 and only after 20 years they turn. You, you might as well say, "Now it's too late. That's what man would do. Why would God do different? Because He's not man. Why, why does God not do different? Because God is not man and He's a merciful God, abounding in steadfast love. And He's willing to receive the people again and again. It was through the intercession of Samuel. But more than the intercession of Sam, and if you ask why should God accept, we see in, in, in verse um, 10, I believe. Oh, in verse 9, because there was a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. That's the God-prescribed way of dealing with sin. The author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. For the simple reason that sin deserves death. And when God commanded Adam to not eat from the forbidden tree, he warned in the day that you eat, you you shall die. So every sin, every transgression, no matter how big it is or how small you think it is, it is huge in God's eyes. It is deserving of death. But God in his mercy, he provides a way of forgiveness. In the Old Testament, it was by sacrificial animals. But those sacrificial animals were typifying or meant to point us to the ultimate substitute God's own son that uh, we're coming to that period of, of Christmas now when we read through Matthew's and Luke's birth narrative. You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It is God's own son coming into the world. And this is the message that forgiveness comes through the, the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as John called him. You see, Samuel's circling lamp was a picture of Christ as our sacrifice. And Samuel himself, you could say, is a picture of of Christ, our King. It is Samuel interceding as a mediator between God and the people of God, offering the sacrifice. And it is Samuel as both the priest the prophet and the king, the judge in, the, in these days were, was the king of Israel, was the one who was uh, uh, higher up in the ruling of the nation. It is Samuel who, who perfectly pictures for us what Christ was to do for his people. Like Israel, we are reconciled to God through the sacrifice and the mediating ministry Of Jesus Christ. You know how the author of Hebrews expresses it. He is able to save you to the uttermost. Because he ever lives. To make intercession for us. What a beautiful picture. We find in this passage. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture we find. Of our high priest. There is nothing quite so. Jaw dropping, awe inspiring, intense in our, in considering, in, as we, uh, to know that we are subjects of Jesus' intercessory prayer. Can you imagine now, even now as I'm preaching, it is what gives me confidence. Even now as you're listening, God, the Son is interceding on your behalf. But there was trouble at Mizpah, wasn't there? And we'll we'll go quickly over this section to finish. Perhaps we should. there's quite a bit here to consider. There's the Philistines, as they heard of the heard of the, the Israelites gathering, the Philistines are there. The Philistines are there and they turn to God or they turn to Samuel to plead to God for them. But we'll leave this for next week. I I, I still have quite a bit to say but we'll leave it for next week uh, and consider it more fully. Let me just say this. It was here at Mizpah that victory came We'll we'll see how victory came over the the Philistines at Ebenezer. But it is at Mizpah that victory, restoration, revival came to to the people of God. Because they repented of their sins. So it is revival that we want. It is revival that we need. But is it revival that we are willing to? Is it repentance that we are showing before it can come? You see, all of this, you you see how much it took, how long it took to bring the people of God to this position here. Not only the good things, but up until now, over the last three chapters, it is the bad things, it is not the blessings. But it's the, the chastenings that have brought them there. And we'll consider it next week a little bit more in detail. But let us remember that God's help comes many times, not only f- through the blessings, but as well through the chastenings that we experience. 20 years of chastening. 20 years of turning from the Lord. Of experience experiencing the lack and the want of God's presence was what it took for them to lament and to sorrow over their sin I'll close by quoting um, Matthew Henry he says great faith must expect such severe exercises things are sometimes at the worst with the church and people of God just before they begin to mend you see Revival, as I've quoted someone else, as Lloyd-Jones said, it always humbles us. Revival is a humiliating, uh, abasing experience. It casts us down to the floor. It it makes us feel like we can do nothing. It makes us feel like we can... Act- not accomplish anything. But at the same time, it fills us with a, a sense of reverence, of godly fear. It's, it fills us with a sense of need for God. How desperately absent is that in our midst, brothers and sisters, we, where we feel like we have nothing. We feel like we are abased. We feel like we're cast to the floor. I know we find ourselves in ruins. I know we, we are in many ways lamenting over the ruins that we find ourselves uh, uh, surrounded by. But have we started looking to the Lord? Have we started looking to the Lord in repentance, turning back to Him that He may rebuild these broken ruins of ours? That we may experience God's revival, not only in the land, not only in the district. Yes, as much as anyone else here, I want to see people get saved. But have we desired in the same way for us to be revived, to experience it in our own lives? May God help us to do so.